You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, episode 92 with Chanel Hampton. You're listening to the Trailblazers Podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. What's up, Blazonation? So, this past week, I spent celebrating my dad's 65th birthday, and this weekend was my sister's wedding in my home country of Jamaica. And of course, this episode was pre-recorded, thank God, because I'm returning today and the day this episode goes live from a week plus of spending time with my family, relaxing, shutting off from the world, you know, after what we shared last week with Dr. Michael Lindsay in episode 91. Guys, I needed to shut down and focus in on who and what really mattered the most in my life and I really enjoyed the experience that I had over the course of this past week. And so that said, you're going to love our guest today. I'm talking with Chanel Hampton of Hampton Consulting. And I want you to do me a favor. If you're a fan of our content, I need your help once again. I need you to right now share this out, share this podcast episode, hit the share buttons in your podcast app. Or maybe you want to share out our website, www.tbpod.com, or just open an email or WhatsApp message and share with you know a friend or a colleague or a family member who you know that maybe has teens at home, or maybe they are counselors or coaches or middle school or high school teachers. I think that today's content, as you'll hear in a, in a few minutes, is one that, again, like I said last week, it's powerful and has the ability to really help people who it is designed and recorded to help. So of course, if you share this out on social media, please do me a favor and tag us up. You can find the podcast at TBPod and I'm at Stephen A. Hart. And you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest. Guys, wherever you are, tag us up and that's it let's not waste any more time let's go ahead and get set to receive today's mission fuel from our trailblazer chanel hampton enjoy what's up blazonation you are going to love our guest today i'm talking with chanel hampton of hampton consulting chanel welcome to trailblazers podcast Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. It's an honor. It is exciting to have you as our feature trailblazer. We've been talking about this interview for a while, and it's 9 p.m. on a Thursday night in September at the end of another day, despite what what feels like just another day. You know, I'd say that the times are anything but normal right now. You know, as you reflect on some of what's happening around you, what are you most grateful for in your life right now? That is a loaded question. That is powerful. (laughs) I'm like, so many thoughts are going through our minds. There are two things that come to mind. I am grateful that God has given me another day because despite the days that you ask yourself what is going on, like this is not real, (laughs) uh, or just those days that you are challenged, I still remind myself that it is a day that I'm here. It's the day that you're here. And so I'm grateful for that. And I also think about those who came before me and poured into me, allowing me to be here. I'm grateful for everybody who is fighting the good fight. And these are interesting days. And, you know, I know that this has been said generation after generation, but I'm grateful that we are still here and we can still fight and we can still live. And I'm grateful for the joyful moments today, too. Yeah, so true. So you touched on what brought you here. You and I have had a conversation in the past, but I've been deliberate to not do too much research on Chanel. I kind of wanted <laughs> to discover like the rest of Blazer Nation tonight. So tell us a little bit about Chanel, where you grew up. I'm interested to hear a little bit about that. <laughs> yes. So a little bit about myself. I grew up, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, 
and I moved around every year of my childhood, pretty much. So from Detroit, uh, moved around Detroit in the greater Detroit area, but I definitely identify as a Detroiter. Detroit's my home. I lived in St. Louis for a number of years, but this is still home. Mm-hmm. So Detroit through and through. Wow. So you shared with me prior to the call that core to some of your identity is being an emancipated minor. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that experience and educate me and the community on what it means to be on what an emancipated youth is? That's a great question. I know people who, I know adults, I know people that should be emancipated that don't know what it is. So an emancipated minor essentially is a child under the age of 18 that is essentially being responsible for themselves. They're financially independent. They are living on their own. They are what the court system considers a successful citizen. And depending on the state, the age that you can be to apply for emancipation differs. So here in the state of Michigan, it's 15 or 16 when you can actually apply and petition for your emancipation. And essentially, once you are emancipated, you are considered a legal adult. So even if you're, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, in the eyes of the law, you are a legal adult. And they grant you that label, if you will, or your guardianship, because you are financially independent, you are showing that you are still at that age, academically engaged and successful on your own, that you're responsible, and that you are providing for your own literally shelter, lodging, food, everything. So what age did you become an emancipated minor? So in the state of Michigan, you can apply, I believe, when you were 15. So I essentially, going back a little bit, I frankly ducked and dodged the system for a number of years. Since I was 13, I have lived on my own. I have worked, yeah, 60 to 80 hours a week on top of being a high school student, dual enrollment courses at college, and I raised three Three kiddos that aren't biologically mine, but they are my heart and I love them. And so I was 13 when I essentially went out on my own or had to be on my own. And so there were a few years in between before I actually was able, was eligible to apply in the court system. And through that process, the Michigan court system, as I imagine is the case with any other state court system, discourages you from actually individually petitioning for your guardianship. So they highly recommend that you uh, get a lawyer, that you retain a lawyer. And as you money. (laughs) Exactly. As you can imagine, if you are, you know, 15 years old, you don't have that money. I remember literally sitting down with the yellow pages and literally looking through the phone book and looking up lawyers and calling number after number after number and getting quote after quote after quote of how much it would be to retain a lawyer. And the cheapest retainer was $1,500 and I could not spend $1,500. So going through that process as a kid, honestly, a teenager, is extremely discouraging. The court system discourages you. And even after I became emancipated, it was very interesting because even to this day, obviously, I'm far past 15, 16 years old now. Just society does not know about emancipation. They don't know about emancipated minors. And so even though I was legally adult and in theory should have been able to stop essentially hustling the system and and convincing people that were of age to put a lease in their name for me or to put a cell phone in their name for me or to put a utility bill in their name for me, even when I got my emancipation, I actually still had to do that because society has still not caught up to acknowledging that a 16-year-old kid is actually a legal adult. So that was a really, a very interesting experience. Looking back, it's almost like, you know, God's grace, right? Like thinking about how a kid could maneuver and navigate that system and also while raising other kids. And so, yeah, that was... I mean, I remember going to school to this day. If I, my high school teachers, they had no clue. If you would have actually, to this day, if you went back and asked, I'm not sure if they're still at the high school, but no one knew. No one knew I was ducking and dodging the system. I forged my mom's signature on everything for years and they had no clue. I was academically exceeding expectations. I was going to college classes. I had a job. I was in band. (laughs) I did all these things, but I was at home leading a completely different life. So beyond all of that, you are working? 
yeah, I had I needed to survive. I'm trying to process um, like the win. <laughs> <laughs> so I I'm admitting so many things that are technically maybe illegal. So I remember getting my like work permit, and at 14, you can't get a permit until in Michigan until you're like 14 and nine months. And I remember going to a local restaurant, and I mean, doing everything but begging, like, look, I need a job. Like, I will literally work for free for a day or a week to prove to you that you want me working here. And even when I turned, like when I was 14 and nine months, you can still only work, I believe it's 15 hours a week that it was. And 15 hours a week was not going to pay my bills. It was not going to pay my rent. It was not going to get me hygiene products. It was not going to pay the electricity bill. It was not going to get me food throughout the day. And so I, to this day, am so grateful for the woman. It was a husband and wife. They owned a restaurant and they let me work more hours than the loss that I could work. So I worked every, during the school year, I worked 60 to 80 hours every single week. Oh yeah, a week. Um, I would literally do double and triple shifts on the weekends. Every day after school, I would get off the bus. I had my uniform in my backpack. I had a bus stop that I stopped at right in front of where I worked. I would go there for about eight hours a day. And then on the weekends, I would work all day Saturday, all day Sunday. In the summer, I had two jobs and I did what I had to do. And it was really tough. You know, just I remember having to make decisions and like my peers around me and my friends around me were buying like Air Forces and I was like, I can't spend that money on shoes. I need to pay rent. That's like a fifth of my rent. I can't buy those shoes. And so just remember making those decisions and getting really disciplined at a really early age. In terms of statistics, do you keep track of, this isn't like you weren't homeless, right? Yeah. But at the same point in time, like you are in this space where no one really knows. Like, so are there any statistics on how many emancipated minors are out there and then probably how many are out there that don't identify? Yeah. So it's interesting you ask that because there were moments where I couch surfed, literally there, you know, just in between, you know, it might take me a few months to convince someone like, Hey, I need you to, can you put this lease in your name? Right. Or for me to save up enough money to give someone enough money and enough months of rent to convince them up front that I would come through. And so I couch surfed. There were moments where I was flat out homeless and I think that in terms of statistics, statistics are not accurate. I have over the years, every now and then, you know, I'll pull up some numbers. And the unfortunate reality is that people still to this day don't know what it means to be, they don't know what an emancipated minor is. And so you have kids out here. Like I was a kid. You have kids out here who either the school system or their family even will look at them and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'll just let them stay at my house, you know, or they can just kind of couch surf and go couch to couch to couch, or they, you know, get put in the foster care system. Like I ducked and dodged the foster care system. That was my number one objective at all times. I will never be put in the foster care system because if they found out my circumstances, They wouldn't have talked to me about emancipation. They would have put me in foster care. And so you have a lot of youth that, in all good intentions, right? A family member, a friend's parent, someone will let them stay with them, but they are not talking to them about emancipation because they don't know what it is. So typically it is, you know, just purely survival mode in terms of, well, let's make sure they have shelter. Let's make sure they have like food, you know, they have housing. But when you think down the line, An emancipated minor is not, if you don't get emancipated and you need, if you're in that situation and you need to get emancipated, you can't legally sign for things. You can't complete a FAFSA to go to college. You can't apply for social security. Like there are very basic things that you cannot do if you don't have your own legal guardianship and legal right. And logically that makes sense, right? But people don't think about it when they think about kids. So I remember attempting to apply to college And the FAFSA, like they did not know what to do with me in the financial office. And so the statistics are drastically inaccurate. You know, I've looked at the state of Michigan statistics and given, you know, the year you look at it, it says we have 0% homeless population, you know, in huge urban cores, like here in my own city, some years. And that is, we know that is not right. That's not accurate. And so you have this entire transient youth population. And frankly, a lot of adults see that as the young man that's out here in these streets doing what he needs to do to make money. Half the time, that young man needs to be emancipated. You have the young girl out here that is doing what she needs to do to make money, to survive. 
And a lot of people look at that as their troubled youth, when really the reality is half of those kids need to get emancipated, right? And I'm not saying that every kid makes that decision, but for a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kid to make the decision to, you know, it's hard. I remember working like countless hours to make the amount of money that someone honestly that was doing something else could make in an hour. And that's a really tough decision. That's really hard. It is very trying. It tests like to your core. And so this is a hidden population. Statistics are not accurate. Statistics are not representative. There are not many institutions or states or communities that track emancipated youth. And there's just a lack of knowledge around it. And I deeply, deeply believe that if, you know, there could have been someone there to help me along the way, right? So when you think about the legal representation or when you think about those different things, people just don't know about it. And a lot of adults are good intention, right? So they'll just say, oh, you know, baby, come stay with me, right? We got you. Here's your lunch money. They're not making sure that the legal aspect of it is correct. So while that kid might be taken care of until he or she is 18, what happens after that? How do they apply to college, right? How do they do basic things that, you know, an adult should be able to do? Makes perfect sense. Wow. We could go in another direction with this interview entirely. <laughs> I still have a ton of questions here. But yeah, I'm curious to know like, if some of the motivation behind, because you began your career as a teacher, did any of the experiences in that time push you in that direction? Like, What got you into teaching? Mm. I actually became a teacher in some ways because of my own experiences. Mm-hmm. But there were two key things that really solidified me wanting to become a teacher. I thought since I was seven years old that I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. And that was in part because of my experience becoming an emancipated minor. But it was also because of my experience watching extremely segregated schools here in Michigan and seeing my experience when I went to school at you know points in time in life where I was one of the only Black students in the entire district. And so I went to Michigan, the University of Michigan for undergrad, go blue. And I, until senior year, was on my way to law school to become a civil rights attorney. And my senior year, I... I wor- stop you right there and applaud you. <laughs> because after what we just spent the last 10 minutes talking about, you know, congratulations on that. Like, I mean, that that is amazing to me. Sorry, I had to break you right there. That's just, that blows my mind. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It, again, was like the grace of God. If I would not have had a full-ride scholarship to Michigan, I would uh, not have been able to go to college. Like, I literally would not have been able to. Like, that dorm, I will never forget, that was the most stable housing I'd ever had in my life. That was the first time I did not have to move, like, every six to ten months. And so, yeah, it was... Yeah, I appreciate that. Wow. I'm just thinking like you just told me you work in 60 hours, 60 plus hours a week and having to take care of yourself and do all that you had to do. And yet you found it to the time to put in the work to make sure that you could get a full ride. I mean, that was the goal. That was, I remember being a uh, very young before I even got emancipated and that was Like when my mother was around in my life, she was an amazing parent. And I had relatives who really instilled in me, including my mother and other relatives, the importance of education. And I remember like very logically, you know, telling myself like, Chanel, you do not come from a silver spoon. No one is going to take care of you. You have made it this far. This is the hard part. College will be the easy part. And so everything that I did literally was like lining myself up to get a full ride because I knew, you know, 60 to 100k was not going to fall out of the sky and so that was the goal that was certainly the goal well listen 10 years from now i'll be playing this episode for my daughter and she's acting a fool (laughs) (laughs) and i'm sure a lot of trailblazers who have kids in high school who you know have have that silver spoon right and are Mm -hmm. just you know so much kids go through and especially today they're accustomed to winning right and always having (laughs) things handed to them and just listening to some of what you've shared and and knowing that there are so many kids out there like you i mean we just really have to give god thanks for blessing you and carrying you through that but also give you the credit for putting in the work you know because same point in time i mean yes you were blessed to get through that journey but you had to put in the work and you did and so, you know, congrats to you on that. That's amazing. And you, you're giving me chills. We're like 15 minutes <laughs> in here. 
<laughs> I I appreciate that. And that's really why I wanted to have the opportunity to share my story, not because I wanted to share my story right for the sake of myself, but because I hope that there is a young person that is listening to this podcast that, you know, or an adult that knows a kid in this situation, a relative that has a younger relative who is going through these things Mm -hmm. and they don't know what to do. They don't know about emancipation. They feel like, you know, you're living hour to hour, day to day, week to week, and you're barely there, right? It's really hour to hour. And you don't know how you're going to get to that next point. You don't know what's going to happen. You feel like you're doing all the right things. And there are points as a kid where you stop and you're like, what am I doing this for? Mm -hmm. Like, why am I taking the high road? And I want, like, I pray that there is someone listening to this that knows your current circumstances do not determine your future, right? For me to look at where I am today as the president of a consulting company and to look at where I came from, you know, that is like, again, the grace, but also, you know, you're right. It took discipline. And I remember those days where I was just like, why am I doing this? Like I'm seeing some people around me who are making so much more than me. They're making it quicker they're making it faster. They don't have to worry about paying bills. You know, they're good. And I hope that there is someone listening to this, that if you are questioning why you keep doing the right thing, there's a reason you're doing it. It's going to pay off. You're going to make it through. Regardless of whether you feel like you have someone there in your corner, know that there are people who have done this and that are willing to mentor you, are willing to talk to you. It's possible to get through it. Wow. I don't even know where to go now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. So, you know, I kind of cut you on this whole piece about teaching and what got you into teaching. I'm still interested in understanding that part of that you know, what got you moving in that direction initially? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I wanted to be a civil rights attorney and, you know, hearing a bit about my story, that might not be surprising in terms of what really solidified me pursuing becoming a teacher. I worked my senior year at Michigan. I had an internship and I worked for the Michigan prison system. Well, I should say I worked for an organization. It was actually a Quaker-based organization called the American Friends and Service Committee. And I was essentially a free, unqualified lawyer for inmates in the Michigan prison system. So essentially we would have inmates who would, who had found out about the organization, who would, you know, contact us, who would ask us to, you know, essentially communicate and, you know, lobby on their behalf. And so I just time and time again kept saying to myself, I'm no different than my clients. I had done things, my peers at Michigan had done things that some of the clients I was working with and advocating for had done far less and literally the rest of their life, they were going to be in prison. And I saw an inordinate number of black men in prison. And as a black woman, having raised black men and just deeply caring about my community, that was heartbreaking. And I just remember, you know, say like thinking to myself, I'm no different than them. Every kid that's here as Michigan is no different than these people that I'm like, you know, I'm getting to know through advocating for them. And so I, you know, really came to the realization that I didn't want to study cases in law school, that I really wanted to help prevent cases. Because I also asked myself oftentimes in getting to know some of my clients, you know, their stories, it was like if someone just would have like intercepted and like helped them earlier on they would not have been in that situation. And so I started to ask myself, like, what can I do? Because being a lawyer is going to be reactive. And we need to be proactive, especially when we are talking about Black people, when we are talking about marginalized communities, when we are talking about communities that don't have the financial capital and access to get lawyers and representation and pay bonds and all of these things. And then the second thing was my younger brother dropped out of high school while I was on a full ride in Michigan. And to this day, he, you know, has barely a high school education. And that for me was like, I remember seeing my brother in school when we were younger, and he was treated like a black man in America is treated oftentimes. And so 
I literally was, I was like furious. I was livid. And I remember saying like, I'm going to be the teacher that my brother deserved. Like uh, he's a genius. My brother's far more intelligent than me, like hands down. But because he wasn't your traditional learner, because he was an energetic, joyful black kid, completely just was deterred by the system, by the educational system. And so I started to look at programs and how I could teach. So that was how I became a teacher. I was tired of seeing a system that is supposed to educate, inform, and liberate kids, like pump them into the prison system, push them away from school, push them out of school. And so that was that was really what led me to become a teacher. Wow. So you've gone through a career post-teaching and mm-hmm. that has led you to where you are today, right? And so a couple of years ago, you founded your own company, Hampton Consulting. And curious to know kind of what prompted you to start the consulting company. That's a great question. Sometimes I know people are like, well, you were a teacher and then you yeah. recruited teachers. So a lot that, you know, in terms of family, I lived in St. Louis when I was teaching. I had earned two master's degrees and was actually set up to be my school's assistant principal. Yeah. And we had a number of unfortunate things happen in my family, including like my mother and I had rekindled our relationship and my mother ended up getting cancer and passing. And at the same time, I had about six immediate relatives that passed within about like a six month period. And so I remembered like being like a classroom teacher that was going to be my last year before I became an assistant principal. And I just knew that I was the one that was responsible for my family. And so I had to keep coming up to Michigan, you know, at literally every week, every other week, um, taking care of everything. And that was actually how I ended up leaving the classroom. I knew I wanted to continue to be involved in education, but I knew that I remember going to my principal and, you know, saying, Miss Reed, like, I cannot responsibly lead a school right now. Like, if I get a call, you know, I have to go. And my school family was so supportive. We still talk. And I then went on to like lead a national recruitment team and national diversity recruitment initiatives. And then I did that for a number of years. And in 2014, I moved back home to Detroit. So I went from St. Louis, came back home, and I was traveling three weeks a month for work. I was lucky if I was home five days a month. And I hit a point. Yes. And it was like, I love traveling, but no, it was, like you know, <laughs> I, it gets extremely tiring. Yeah. You know, with the travel, you're talking about 80 to 100 hour weeks. You're living out of a suitcase. You're living in a hotel. And really what it was, it wasn't actually the travel, but I told myself I moved home to, because I knew I always wanted to come home and I wanted to make an impact in my city. But I was never home to even do that. And so I took everything that I had learned throughout life and refined and, you know, kind of sharpened throughout my career. And I launched a consulting company that works strictly with mission driven clients. I remember people telling me like there were things easily outside of my job that I would do, whether you want to call it pro bono. Like I was just passionate. I was like, sure, I'll design a workshop for you. Sure, I'll do a keynote. Sure, I'll design this whole curriculum. And I was doing all of these things in addition to my job. And I remember people telling me, we would pay you for this. And it was interesting because what I tell people is that people saw the president, the CEO, the leader in me before I actually saw it. And so in 2015, a year after you know being home and traveling and not being home, I launched Hampton Consulting. And it's been right over two years. And it literally was one of the best decisions and just, it's been an amazing opportunity. One of the best decisions I made, not only in my career, but just in my life, honestly. So there's so much that you said that I kind of need to unpack. So what was the vision that you had for Hanson Consulting when you first thought of starting? So the vision when I first started was that I was going to be a Midwest-based, like a Detroit-based Midwest consulting firm, and that I would work with clients around diversity, education, recruitment, operations, and leadership coaching. And I remember sitting on my couch because when I left my job, I said, I'm going to take a month because I've worked a hundred hours a week, like for years and I'm tired. And I probably sat there for, you know, relaxed for five days. And then I was like, okay, I'm good. We're doing this and started up. And I remember sitting in a notebook and just writing out content for my website, literally just writing it out, writing it out. 
And the vision was, you know, I'm going to get some clients in Detroit. I'm going to make an impact in my city. And, you know, I had this plan in terms of what we would offer, but the vision was really focused on Detroit. And the big goal was that, you know, we become known in the Midwest. And so that was the vision two years ago. So the next thing is you talk about mission-driven clients. I kind of want us to break that part down. So maybe if you could explain what mission-driven work like means. That's a great question. So mission-driven clients include your nonprofits, your community-based organizations, your foundations, your educational entities, whether, you know, pre-K through 12, higher education, anyone who is working toward a mission that is in some way, shape, or form centered around community, justice, advocacy work. What I also tell people is that you'll never see me working, for instance, with a client that is a pharmaceutical company, and I'm working on operations with them to help them make more sales. That will never happen, right? But I do have some corporate clients who are working on facets of leadership coaching and diversity, equity, inclusion work. I will work with them because they are literally trying to build out and create more inclusive environments for their employees, for their organization, and for their customers. Right. So who are some of the clients that you might work with, just as an example? That's a great question also. So clients include everyone from, you know, of course, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement through, (laughs) yes, you know, I've given a shout out, through the Skillman Foundation, United Way for Southeastern Michigan, Michigan Department of Education. I have a number of individual like coaching clients um, that are more private. We work with districts throughout the city and throughout the state. And we also have some, again, kind of one-off clients that are on the coasts as well. But in Detroit, you know, we have the big foundations, the nonprofits, the educational entities, the University of Michigan. We did some work when President Obama was in office with their Office for Educational Excellence for African Americans. And also did some work with My Brother's Keeper, along with the Campaign for Black Male Achievement as well. Wow. So Chanel, what's driving you today in the work that you're doing? Like what's pushing you, especially as we look into next year? Like, where do you see this going? What's pushing me is finally allowing myself to walk in my leadership and walk in the gifts that I have been given. I deeply, deeply believe in my community and in advocating for marginalized communities. And so what pushes me is every single day, I'm working on behalf of kids in my hometown city. I'm working on behalf of kids and community members across the country. I'm working and impacting like literally like my very own relatives, my friends, and people who I don't know, but that I care about because I know that they are, you know, my community. They're my people. They are good people. They might not be part of my, you know, like the black community, but I know that they need advocacy or let's say, you know, they are great and dandy and don't need advocacy, but you know, they are looking to bring about more change. And so what pushes me every day is just seeing the company grow, seeing the impact that we're having. And as we are two years in, we've expanded. We're not just in Detroit. We're not just in the Midwest. We have national clients. We are looking at opening another office outside of Michigan, which is really exciting. And so, you know, Being the disciplined person that I was as a kid, that's carried over into adulthood. And so, you know, of course you have that strategic plan, but I've also learned that, you know, God always has something that you cannot imagine or even fathom in store. Mm -hmm. And so while I know that I will continue to do mission-driven work, who knows who our next client will be? Who knows where Hampton Consulting will go next? What I do know is that we will always be working on behalf of missions that you and I both believe in. So as you think about the expansion parts right now, like I'm curious, I'm thinking of who are the best type of people to do this type of work and maybe what some of the attributes and skills are that help people looking at this as a line of work to maybe experience success. Like who would you bring on to help Hampton? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very specific question. So I look at that, that's a twofold question for me in terms of who I would bring onto the team. One of the most humbling things about starting Hampson Consulting, and particularly in the past year, is that I've had a number of people in Detroit, in Michigan, outside of on another coast, moving back to Michigan, and somehow finding Hampton Consulting and saying, 
you're the only organization in the entire state doing this. I like literally cannot find anyone else. And so while I have my eyes on some people, <laughs> it's also been really interesting to have people approach me. I look for folks who literally embody the principles of the company, passion, excellence, and integrity, and that are up for a challenge. Consulting is very gray space, right? While we are strategic, while we have five key areas that we do work in, it is gray space. We have went into organizations and completely built out projects and initiatives and plans from scratch, from nothing. We've also gone in and been able to work and build relationships quickly and help people further refine the greatness that they already have going on. And so I look for people who are passionate, who believe in excellence and always operating in excellence and who also have integrity. I also, though, you know, think about our clients, right? So who can help Hampton Consulting grow? It's not only about growing the team internally, but it's about growing with our clients and partners. And so if there are organizations, if you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you are whether the, you know, senior leader of an organization or company or what have you, if you are looking for a consulting firm that does mission-driven work, right? That can help you strategically, that has both the cultural competence and the context for community, but also is excellent in terms of strategy and the those nuances of organization that people typically don't pair along with culturally responsive work, Hampton Consulting has that. Just what I've shared about my own story, I carry that in everything that I do, right? So while I had a very specific experience in my community and did a lot of things to frankly hustle, right? And make a way, I also was extremely disciplined. And so Hampton Consulting was birthed out of that, right? It was years and years and years later after I became an emancipated minor. But the passion, the excellence, and the integrity, those have always been my principles. Those have always been my values. I was passionate about life. I was passionate about succeeding. And I had to be excellent to do so. And I always operated with integrity. It was really hard to make the right decisions as a kid. And it's still, you know, as an adult, adults struggle with that. Yeah. Absolutely. And you've broken a cycle right? You've broken a very clear path to a life in poverty in many ways by being that disciplined, focused, hardworking child, no adults. I still hear the passion in your voice and in your story right now as you speak. But to someone listening that may be in that valley right now, like, or may have seen some measure of success, but maybe don't, doesn't have that much discipline to stay on that narrow, right? And until you get out completely out, what are your thoughts around staying the course? I think that it goes back to if you have a dream, if you have an aspiration, if you have a goal, know that you are worthy, know that you are able to, like you can achieve that, know that you can get there, know that it's not going to be easy. But know that if you take it day by day, choice by choice, hour by hour, it might not seem like it is paying off today, but it will pay off. You will get to that dream. You can reach that goal. You can change your circumstances. In my mind, anything that is, you know, that goal, that aspiration, anything that is, you know, such a big, such a big idea that it scares you, that's worth working for. Like that is worth fighting for, that is worth staying the path for. And so it's really hard when you see people around you who might not be making those same decisions or that are in completely different circumstances in you, whether it is financially, whether it is, you know, emotionally. Like I remember seeing kids with families and parents and, you know, not having any worry about, you know, where they're going that night or how they're paying for lunch, but know that you are still just as worthy as that next kid, as that next person. And that's the side of it, Chanel. I know that there are things that my kids will learn by default about money management, Mm -hmm. right? Like that probably coming up, you didn't have money to manage, right? Like, right? like I mean, you knew that, like, as you're sharing your story, as you expressed earlier, you knew that you couldn't buy Air Force One, right? Like, you had to pay the rent, right? So, like, as you now come into money, as you now get through Michigan, and you've now got into this career, and you've now begun to see 
some measure of financial success in this business that you're building, I'm thinking of what taught you how to manage, how to position your mindset, right? Like talking about there not being enough support organizations like yours, right? Is there enough support there, you think, for people who are moving out of that cycle of poverty to be able to educate them about adulthood and that financial side of things to make sure that they don't slip back because they just weren't educated to be able to to stay the course and to elevate, you know, from where they are, you know, further up the chain, right? That makes sense. And begin to... It does. Because, I mean, it takes education and it takes a certain mindset too to be able to begin to build wealth and have that mindset towards building for your kid's generation and maybe mm-hmm. not even what you're going to experience some of, you know, that like my wife, she's wired in a different way from her parents than I was, you know, coming from Jamaica. My parents didn't have a college education where hers uh-huh. did, you know, and so they are much better about <laughs> handling money than my family was, you know, and I'm learning so much from that. And so that just has me thinking of mindset as it relates to to what we're talking about. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot in what you just said. You know, you asked, are there enough organizations that like help educate people in this way? No. I mean, frankly, if you look at the average American, the average American doesn't even have the discipline that we're talking about, right? right. Yeah. We are, if you look at statistics, we rack up credit card debt. We are all about short-term immediate gratification. You're talking about a discipline that is just not as common as people think. I think simultaneously about the mindsets and, you know, for me, so I was very disciplined from a really young age. And part of it was when I was younger and when my mother was around, you know, my mom made a way out of no way, right? I could take a dollar and do a lot with it. (laughs) And it was that seeing my mom, because even though my story is one of an emancipated minor, like before that, things were good right? Like I had a great mom who I saw make a way out of no way. And so I learned a lot from that. I think of my grandparents who were nearly a hundred, both of them when they passed and they passed within the past five years. And so thinking about them and the era and the generation that they came from and seeing what they built from nothing. For me, in my mind, even as a kid, I was like, there's no excuse. There's no reason I cannot be successful. I'm not living in Jim Crow. I'm not living during certain times. There is no excuse. I know that I have access to an education. No one can deny me from going to this school. I know that I can get to college. I've done my research. I know what my starting salary will be. Like I remember thinking about those things and it was because I had such a deep appreciation and respect for my family. And they were, I mean, my mom, like, I don't know how my mom did it. Single mom, two kids. I don't know how we even had what we had. We didn't have much right? <laughs> but I don't know how we made it. And every day there are things where I'm like, how did she do this? But now as an adult, I mean, the reality is I'm in a drastically different financial situation than I was, or frankly, than anyone else in my family now. And when I'm thinking about kids and the mindsets that they need, you know, I think, so here's the reality. If I have kids today, my kids will never be in the socioeconomic status that I was as a kid or even 10 years ago. And so I think about the same things, but I think that there is a certain level of discipline that frankly, our entire community can learn from and embody, right? That America can learn, can embody further. Because here's the thing, I wouldn't change my circumstances and my story for the world. I would not change anything. It made me who I am. It's allowed me to build a life, a career for myself, for better or worse, right? I have learned so much from that. Now, would I want my children to go through that? No, I wouldn't. But there are things that we can do as parents, right? Having raised a few kids and also, you know, I think about one of my middle school students is actually a junior up here at the University of Michigan right now. And she often is with us because she's from St. Louis. So she's in Michigan. My guest bedroom is her bedroom. And, you know, I think about the things that I teach her and the conversations that we have and I'm teaching her things along the way and having conversations with her to make sure that she's aware because she is fortunate, right? She has an amazing mom. She has family up here. Like we help. So it doesn't, she doesn't have to go through those things, but I'm having conversations with her. You know, I'm literally helping her to learn how to budget. I'm teaching her financial skills that not only do our kids not know, 
but adults in America don't know, they right? Don't know. We don't those Absolutely and that's know. the thing that is like and that's a sound facetious but i'm like adults don't budget and adults do not do these they things. don't even the smartest ones like you know as you're talking i'm like well it's one thing to have a good sound education and a great paying job but unfortunately i'm seeing really smart people in my community they're making really good money but i know they're spending a lot of that that they're not saving <laughs> that they're not building wealth you know and it's where our values right so i think that on a very personal note, I think that oftentimes in our community, we internalize things and we then place value on things that we think make us look better, that Jesus. surface yeah, level but, make us yeah. feel better. Yes. And so, you know, I mean, I had to discipline myself out of survival at a really young age, but there are still things where I'm like, I will never, I don't care how much money I make. You will never see me like spending that much money on X or Y. And so I think it is a thing too of, again, going back to worth, know your worth Mm -hmm. and know your value and know that that is completely independent of any, you know, product, any item, any service that you can have. And how do we build that mindset of wealth and that mindset of our own value, like as human beings, literally, like our bodies, our minds, our spirits, our souls have value that is far more priceless than anything you can go and swipe a card for. And so how do we build that mindset in our community? Because I had that mentality as a kid. I knew what I was worth. People around me might not have seen it. Some of them did, right? Like people always talk about how I was very disciplined as a kid, but like there were things that I saw for myself when nobody else saw it. Like I know what I'm getting to. I know I'm going to get this like education, right? I know I'm going to do certain things. And it's how do we, do we believe that for ourselves? Do we believe that we are valuable? And though that might be easy to ask and like verbally utter, that's a very loaded question. Do we believe that we are valuable? Do we believe that we are worth investing in and disciplining ourselves in the short term, in the long term, to get to that goal, to get to that aspiration, to break the cycle. I could just listen to you talk all night. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, Chanel, just keep talking. (laughs) Listen, we are like coming up on time here and I am just depressed that oh went by that quickly. So I have so much more I want to talk to you about. But listen, before we wrap up, you know, our trailblazers love to hear about tools and resources, right? So just quickly, I'd love to tap into any books that you're reading or you've read recently that have really inspired you. So I'm going to get very personal and this might not be expected, but every morning and every night, the first and last thing that I do in my day is I read the Bible. It doesn't matter what is going on, how little time I have in the morning you know, I'm racing how sleepy I am at night, I read. And that is actually something that has grounded me my entire life. I still have my Bible from my childhood. Wow. I do the book. I'm old school. I'm old school. And so that is, it's grounding for me. It's very grounding. I also think about, there are a number of books that I have recently been reading. So I set a goal for myself this year to read this. So this might sound minimal, but outside of, you know, school and work and those things, I found myself not reading often. And so I have said, I need to read one to two books every month just for personal, you know. a lot. Uh, yes. I, I feel like it's so style. minimal. No. Um, and so <laughs> everything from, I actually, so Shonda Rhimes' Year of Yes, although it's like, you know, a little year or two old. And actually that has been my mindset this year, saying yes to things that I would not have said yes to before. And that was really about my own personal development. I also think about the book, The Turnaround CEO that Shonda of CBMA actually recently gave me. Sean um, gave us all the book. Sean <laughs> reads like 30 books a month. So this is why I'm like, my one to two is nothing. And so, yeah, I mean, those are, I've literally just read, I've been reading and I'm constantly reading articles. I am very obsessed with Harvard Business Review and that might sound very nerdy, but I really believe in our own leadership development and building organizations that have strong culture and operations and infrastructure. And yeah, I'm literally reading right now, Gabrielle Stidemi's book, which is totally personal. And so I've just been reading. I've been reading everything, fiction, nonfiction. I'm just like reading right now. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Chanel, last question of the night. What's one action that our Blazer Nation should engage in this week that's going to help them on their journey to blaze their trail? Do something for yourself. It doesn't matter what it is. If you want to go for a walk, 
if you want to make a personal investment in yourself, if you want to say no to something, if you want to say yes to something, if you want to take a leap of faith, do something for yourself. Know your value, know your worth, and do something that is going to make you happy and work toward your dreams for yourself. Chanel, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. Before we wrap up, tell everyone how they can stay connected to you and learn a little bit more about Hampton Consulting. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter, connect with me on Twitter, uh, Chanel, C-H-A-N-E-L underscore Hampton, H-A-M-P-T-O-N. You can also check us out, Hampton Consulting. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and also on our website at hamptonconsultingdetroit.org. Would love to hear from you, whether you're looking to partner, collaborate. If you are a young person out there that has heard this and you want to connect on a personal note, I am here. I genuinely mean that. So yeah, whether you are an adult, whether you are a CEO, whether you are a 13-year-old kid, I would love to hear from you. Chanel Hampton, thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tdpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers. Cheers.